Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Fifth grader Amy Mahalovic went to Bay Village Middle School on Friday wearing green pants, a lavender and green sweatshirt, and carrying a denim and red backpack. Police found Amy's bike locked up at school, but they haven't found Amy. I've always taught them the rules. You never go with anyone anywhere, but that's how we got through her, through her soft heart. She wanted to do something for mom, and it was supposed to be kept a secret. Yeah, you know, first of all, Margaret and Amy were close. Uh, you know, they rode horses together, they hung out together, they, they were more close. And I think that there had to be some factual basis in Amy's mind for this trip to meet this person. And I think that would make sense. And I also think that for them to have the information they did um, implies some familiarity with Margaret. It's what somebody uh, told me, that you'd have to know the area to be out there. He could have been any age, really. I mean, we, we have a range of about 25 to 35, roughly, for this individual. Okay. Uh, differing uh, clothing descriptions, different hair descriptions, one with glasses, one without glasses. I think what we can safely say is that it's a white male, uh, average build, uh, who um, is probably in that 25 to 35 year age, that seemed to be fairly consistent. That's what we really can tell. Beyond that, it becomes very difficult to get into any kind of specifics as to who that person is or what they look like. Yeah, the kids, and I don't, I, I think I remember the word, but if somebody said, I'm here to pick up you at school, they, without them saying the, the, the secret word, uh, they knew that that was not, they weren't uh, supposed to be doing that. It was, it was brought up, yeah. That's what makes you think even more that she knew something about this person that uh, she went off with. Uh, by then, Margaret had called uh, uh, all the Amy's f parents' friends or fr uh, friends and uh, called some of our friends uh, that lived in. In fact, I was just uh, out to lunch with this uh, one guy that came in. He lived in a Vermilion, came in from a Vermilion, and that's when him and I... Uh, walked the French Creek there all the way from Bay Village to the lakefront that night. And uh... Amy's posters up all over town will eventually come down. So will the ribbons tied up for Amy that are now worn and torn. But her memory will stay as this tiny tree grows. Students planted the tree for Amy after she disappeared. The mystery of Amy Maholovic's murder began on October 27, 1989. The 10-year-old last seen at this Bay Village shopping plaza, lured there by a man she told friends had called her days before. He said he wanted to take Amy to buy her mom a gift since she'd just been promoted. And Amy could keep a better secret than her brother. She disappeared. We love you, Amy. We love you. We support you. We send everything good out of our hearts to you. Send some message. Find some way to come home. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed, featuring Nick and the captain of the True Crime Garage podcast. This week, we are going to be going back to an episode that we recorded a few years ago because of the fact that not much has really changed in the case of one Amy Mahalovic. She was the 10-year-old girl who was kidnapped from the Bay Village Shopping Plaza on October 27th, 1989. Now, her body was found 50 miles away, 109 days later, and her body had been there for pretty much the whole time. Unfortunately, we have only seen some minor updates throughout the years. I know that I've focused my original podcast on this case, and obviously this is one of those cases where it is very close to my heart. I grew up near where this happened. And again, it looms over the city as much as the authorities like to downplay that. But the case is still active and there are people working on it. But in that regard, there still really hasn't been anything new to report. There have been some false reports on News 5 where they claim to have received new evidence from a suspect that they found in the police transcripts or the police records, but it just turns out to be just a bunch of bunk because 
Well, have you seen any follow-up stories to that one? Well, I haven't, and I am pretty confident to say that something that was told to the police in 2019 should have been investigated by now. Therefore, that particular update, which they claimed was an exclusive, was really just a sweeps week special. And we all know how that works. And if you know me, you know I think that's a bunch of BS. Because, yes, it's important to cover these cases when anniversaries, such as the October 27th anniversary of Amy's abduction, to bring attention to the case. But to garner ratings for your news channel? I don't think so. I am not reporting anything new because I don't have anything new to report. But I am going to play this episode that I recorded with Nick and the captain. Now, they are literally the pillars of the true crime community, and they probably have the best show in the country, in my opinion. Of course, I'm biased because they are my mentors and have helped me along the way. But again, these are cases that are very important to us, and Nick has worked with James Renner, and they've started the Porchlight Project, and they've provided funding for DNA testing, and they've had results, and it's great. And we are basically in a world where anything can happen, and if we just put enough effort towards it, we will eventually find an answer. We do know that they have DNA. We just also know that there isn't any test out there that will help us find the killer. So let's listen into this episode that I recorded with Nick and the captain. I am lucky to have Nick and the captain on this week's episode of Who Killed to discuss who killed Amy Mahalovic. And welcome to the show, guys. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Yeah, you know, I've never had the both of you on at the same time. It's uh, quite a treat, and I hope the uh, listeners will enjoy that as well because I know you guys both have opinions on this case. Just give me a, a little background on each of your involvement with the case, because I know that to some degree they're pa- it's a passion case of yours, but it's not, you know, you didn't grow up in the Cleveland area, but age-wise, and, you know, you've done a lot of episodes about it. So I just wanted to hear what you guys thought about the case and having you both together. It's pretty nice. Well, my involvement in the case probably stems from Nick's passion for it. I I think it's a case that he's looked into several times. A lot of the cases we cover on the show, we have seven days to dissect them as much as we can, and then we have to move on to the next case. With Amy's case, because there's so much information out there, it's a case that you can keep going back to over and over, and we've done that several times with our show. Um, So I think my passion for the case comes from it's something that he's interested in talking about. So anything that he brings to my attention, then I'm up late night, you know, up late night, Googling whatever he brought to my attention. So that's, that's how I got involved in it. Well, I followed the case for a few years and it's, um, you know, it's led me to some interesting characters, Bill, you're (laughs) one of them. And, uh, you know, now a friend. And of course, uh, James Renner, who wrote uh, the book, uh, searching for, uh, Amy, my hunt for her killer. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's it's an interesting case. We're all the captain, me, you. We're all about Amy's age. We're all from Ohio. We all can identify with that. I've told you before on this show. It was really for me. It was the the a point in my life where where crime, a crime story that I saw on TV became something that was real. It wasn't just a story. It wasn't just happening to people that uh, live far away in some place that I'd never been to. It wasn't something, a segment on Unsolved Mysteries. This was a person that was my age that was, you know, experiencing roughly the same things I was at the time and lived a couple, you know, an hour or two up the road from me. And it, it became very real. And I, I remember when they found her and that made it even more real because when she was missing, I I was a little at the time, you, you don't expect for the worst to happen. And it did. And, um, it's a case that I followed for a very long time. And now here we are, as you pointed out, we are 
days away from the 31st anniversary of when she was abducted. And, um, it's weird because the, the connections that I've made with people throughout the years looking into this case so much, they're all kind of reaching out to me again. Everybody's kind of talking again. It's, it's on everyone's mind, uh, this time of year, of course. I was going to say, it's also really interesting since we started the podcast before we started the podcast, Nick gives me a call one day and says, I'm going to this book reading uh, of this author about this case happened to be James Renner, you know, cut to a year later, James is on the show. Then we end up having a relationship with James. Then you start your podcast. Then we have a relationship with you. And just this week, my buddy comes to visit, uh, to, you know, Hey, um, this girl that listens to your podcast, we struck up a conversation. We've been dating. We're now getting married. Uh, she's, they come to my house, you know, so I can meet her and everything. And, and then she explains to me that she's, uh, was a, a longtime friend of Amy Mahovic's. So it's just crazy how, even though it's two hours away, um, how connected we, we have become with a case like this. Yeah. I think that's a good point. It does sort of connect a lot of different it comes up in a lot of different scenarios a lot of um i mean I'll, I'll be randomly out and talking about something and somebody will come up to me and be like oh, are you are you, i heard you're the one that do the did the amy mahalovic podcast i went to school with her or you know it's it is something that i think as ohioans or just like the people in our generation it's just something that is always going to be until until it's solved, I think, and I, if it's solved, I think it's going to be one of those things that will constantly come up in conversation if we're discussing true crime or things that affected us as kids. Because like Nick said, you know, it was the first time that a real crime affected the way that he looked at life. You know, it was like, wait a second, this could actually come to my doorstep and it's not just something that I see on TV or hear about and i think that is probably for me i know that's probably the reason for me that it's resonated so long and that it was just like somebody that could have easily been a part of my group of friends that was just you know like how do you know that somebody that you know is getting a phone call from a from a stranger and what do you what do you even say if you do know that it's just the whole situation, I think, is uh, so, so unique. And I think that's what kind of traumatizes a little bit of, of everybody. And I know for me. Well, it's a, it's very, a very unique situation to have anybody in your elementary school pass away. And so to have a situation where this person obviously passed away, but it wasn't you know, that she ended up having cancer or something. This was somebody that was taken from this earth. So I think it's, especially the people that went to school with her or knew her in that community, how much that had to affect their childhood, probably even 10 times more than, than our childhood, just hearing about it from a distance. Well, and, yeah, you know, stranger child abduction is, thank God, a very rare thing. But... In 1989, you have Jacob Wetterling is abducted at gunpoint. Uh, you know, him and his buddies are on bikes coming from the video store. That case, that case and, is honestly, that was between your show and in the dark. You guys were the drive, like those were the driving forces behind doing a podcast about Amy Mahalovic because Wetterling was literally our age. And I mean, so was Amy, but. Right we all rode bikes. We were guys. Come on. You know, like if we were with two buddies, why wouldn't you think you'd be safe? And then four days later, whatever it was, Amy's abducted. And I think in the, in the redux episode that I'm doing tomorrow or will have been last week, but basically that was a national story where Amy's story was a national story, but it didn't, it didn't take off the way that Jacobs took off. Yeah. And I think, the big part of that is one, we have two witnesses 
direct witnesses in his case that say this is what happened and the 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 story itself of what happened is so terrifying and then with amy's it doesn't even become really local news i know that it hit the news that night because they're looking for her but it didn't really become local news of an abduction until a couple days later and that was with the story leaking out about oh i'm meeting an unknown man that's a family friend in air quotes that that i don't know mm-hmm. and i'm i'm meeting them at this shopping plaza and i i think those two things though compounded together are just very extreme for any community and like you said jacob's case national amy's McKay, amy's case quickly becomes a, a big regional story and those two things together I think are going to be forever imprinted in people's minds that are of our age, you know, people that are in their mid thirties to, to mid forties. It, it was a big time and, and Wetterling's case went unsolved for so many years. I mean, think about the, the story of his abduction, the three of them coming back from the video store, this vehicle pulls up um, a lone man gets out with a gun two of these witnesses are going to go home and they're going to tell their parents, we didn't, we didn't get a good look at the guy, but what we did see, we do not know who this man is. And he tells them, he tells them to lay down in the field face down. So they can't get that good of a look at him. And he asked them their ages. How old are you? Each one of them has to shout out their age. He walks up to each one of them picks them up, looks them in the face, who knows what he's looking for, and he decides which of the three to take, like he's freaking grocery shopping. And he drives off with this kid, and we never see him again, and it's it's almost 30 years later to get some, some answers in that case. Amy's case, just as bizarre, but this was not a, a man with a gun with witnesses that saw and identified and knew right away what was going on. This was evil came in through the locked door of their home via the telephone Mm -hmm. and tricked this smart little girl into meeting him. And he just so casually walked away with her in front of everybody. Yeah. I mean, in that, in that sense, do you feel like the killer is a local? I mean, if, if Wetterling, See, Wetterling's case, the guy, Danny Heinrich, who was eventually convicted of it, was basically a known pervert, but nobody really connected the dots between what he had done in a previous city. And and basically, he went like 30 minutes out of his way to go and kidnap Wetterling. Um, with Amy's case, you know, with the fact that she was found in Ashland, which is an hour from where her where she was last seen and the familiarity with the locale of bay village you know nick you mentioned he was like going grocery shopping by picking up the children and looking at them and asking their ages it's you know if if all the other phone calls are correct like that they were actually connected to the same individual in a sense, he was doing the same thing, but like you said, sneaking in through the people, you know, with the telephone, and and that's the way he was getting into the house, opposed to showing up with a gun and saying, "Come with me, kid. YouTube run in the woods." You know, that's, and I think honestly, I do believe if Jacob's story did not happen, Amy's story would have gotten more coverage. Right. And the weird thing about it too was in the minds of parents and in the minds of the people in the communities, immediately you go, well, this is such a rarity. This, they have to be somehow connected. And I was, uh, you know, there's a, there's an old newspaper article. I think it was from the, um, the Akron beacon journal where they're straight up local law enforcement in Amy's case is straight up asked, is there any connection between this case here in Minnesota the Jacob Wetterling case that just happened four or five days ago. And then Amy Mahalovic, they're, they're almost the same age. And, you know, I've heard, I've heard people, people's comments on at, at, at a certain age, gender doesn't matter to these 
creeps and and I get that but I think I think from what I've seen and experienced as far as true crime goes and cases that we've covered and cases that I've looked into these two were old enough that I think gender did matter and I think law enforcement is not only aware of that but they were vocal about that at the time because they straight up said well you do have to consider the fact that the the victims here are male one is male and one is female yes they're about the same age but one haunting thing that the uh investigator said in that same article he says but if you look at the two of them they could be brother and sister and it's just and it's weird how in some strange bizarre scary creepy way they're kind of linked in some way forever 30 years later yeah absolutely do you guys believe that the phone calls are connected? I debate that. I think maybe a couple of them may be connected. I don't know if I think there was a report of eight phone calls, but I mean, when I spoke with Chief Spetzel, I think he's confirmed maybe two were connected. So that leaves six out there that I don't know. I mean, it's the 80s and and even today people like to be a part of the story. So I'm not sure if I can take everything with a, you know, as it is, I I take tend to take that with a grain of salt. How about you, Nick? Well, I think that this is something that we won't know for certain until the case is solved, because you have to factor in a few things into the equation. One, how targeted was Amy specifically? If she was the target all along, then if there were any phone calls connected to this, this was just somebody trying out and practicing to, you know, hone their craft a bit before they go to their target. So those are really calls that, that, yeah, they're connected, but they don't serve the same purpose for our perpetrator. Now I'm with you, Bill. There's been over the years, I've heard eight, nine, numbers as high as 12. If you go back to the initial investigation in 89 and 90, what they were saying at that time was that there was probably two that they seemed to think were actually, in fact, connected. My guess all along with that was that there must have been some verbiage in those conversations that were similar enough to the unknown. We got to keep that in mind. We don't know the exact conversation that went down between Amy and this guy, but there must've been something in there enough for police to say on the record. We think that these two could be possibly connected. Now, as far as I could trace that back, it actually appears that the two that they think are most likely connected to Amy's case were calls that took place in March and April. Amy's not getting these calls. We have no reason to believe that she got these calls until a day or days or a week before she was actually abducted, which was late October. That's a, that's a pretty big window. So if, if in fact they are connected and they're not the same neighborhood, they're not the same city, they're not the same town. We have to ask ourselves, why is that? Why is that window so big? If they are in fact connected, what what's going on between April and October that prevents this guy from continuing to do this? Did he get scared? Does his or maybe he did continue and they just weren't reported? Correct, and that's the thing that I think Bill uh, points out very well. This was the '80s. Um, crank calls were a thing; they weren't that terribly uncommon. And with Amy's case, the other thing too, is maybe they didn't hit their mark. You know, maybe, maybe big brother was home and picked up the phone. Maybe, you know, that stuff we will never know, but, but I actually, the more and more that I look at this case, the more that I think that, that Amy, uh, was, she was targeted. I just don't know how, how, you know, sometimes these, these, perverts will cast a wide net. We don't know how many he was going after or, or what, but I do think she was targeted and I I'm with the captain. I think that if these two were connected, there was probably other calls that we just don't know about. That's a long answer to say, I don't know, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, my my gut feeling is actually less that maybe there's not even one other call connected that they might have, like you said, a singular call that they go, well, this is a possibility, but not a hundred percent, you know, connection there. And I, and I, that's a gut feeling, but it's also based off of. Hey, fellow true crime aficionados. I've stumbled upon the ultimate hidden gem, Dakota Spotlight by James Wollner. It's a revelation. Picture this. Thoroughly researched, original, and peppered with real interviews. No sensationalism here. Just gripping storytelling with heart. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll always want more. So cozy up and join me on the edge of your seat. Trust me, this podcast is the real deal. Start with the Mandan murders and prepare to be hooked. Let's uncover this treasure together. Listen to Dakota Spotlight. Amy's look, her age, her attitude, things that she was involved in. I don't think she was the typical girl next door or even the quote unquote all American girl. So I think I think that her her look and her demeanor were, were um that did something to this individual to make him want to target her. Well, I would say this about Amy, and this kind of goes back to Nick's discussion about gender or gender not mattering at a certain age amy was an older 10 year old she wasn't i mean she was a i mean girls develop before boys that's that's as anybody any male knows you know you go to a junior high dance the girl's taller than you are it or at least it was for me i don't know uh but anyway uh i had a beard in sixth grade <laughs> So, Why does that not surprise me? I'm just not surprised. It was a little strange, but it, we got through it. <laughs> yeah. He had been held back four or five years. It's, maybe six. <laughs> I couldn't count at the time, uh, so I'm not for sure. All making sense now. Yeah. All makes sense. Yes, I think Amy, I think Amy was targeted. I think that um, you know, with her look, like you like the captain said, with her look and 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 if you're like let's say you're basing it off of the picture that they use on the school poster or not the school poster but the missing poster that picture you know Renner always talks about how she hated that picture because in all reality she was more of like a tomboy and yeah, right. she was more into being at the farm you know because she rode horses and that type of stuff opposed to playing Barbies or whatever not to say that she didn't just wasn't necessarily number one on her list so i definitely think that the the appeal well it had to but here's the thing though is like you know when you think of your buddies going on dates right and i mm -hmm. know that's a whole different thing but most people you know have types so why wouldn't uh, a pedophile have a type it's just, you know, and that's where my argument with a lot of these missing. They do 100%. But, yeah. And whoever did this to Amy did. And she unfortunately fit his type. Right. And I think, th and that to me matters because I do think there are molesters and pedophiles out there that they'll just take whatever they can get. Uh, just like you have a, a friend that will just go on any date he can go on. You know, because that's just, that's where he's placed him, his self-esteem, his confidence or whatever. And I, unfortunately all know somebody like that. Yeah. And it's, and, and I've been think I thought a lot about that with like Brian Schaefer's case. If it was, if it was a possible abduction that if there are people out there, um, going after a 10 year old girl going after a 15-year-old girl, going after a 20-year-old girl, having types of victims, then why isn't there somebody out there that's going, hey, I'm looking for a mid-20-year-old good-looking man, and that's my victim type, you know? But I think because she was a tomboy, I think that's where, to me, that's the proof that it was more targeted. I don't, that was always one of my things growing up. I played sports. 
So who, who was I around? Uh, the guys that played sports with me. And when we're at this soccer tournament, guess who we're hanging out with the, the girls team. And because there were athletes, a lot of them were more tomboyish. So that's always been a, a type of mine. So the sporty type. Um, and, but I have a lot of friends that are not into that at all. They don't get it. Well, why would you want a girl that was good at sports? You know, <laughs> like, how is that attractive to you? Um, so I think because of that, I just think it puts a smaller a frame on what type of individual we're looking for. But see, I think there in lies something that I've said from Jump Street. All along, I've always said, if you could figure out how this individual knows Amy and she does not know him, that's your link to finding this killer. It always has been, and in my opinion, it always will. And and we're talking about victimology here. And if this pedo has a type, well, what type is it? Because with Amy, look, I've been looking at this thing a long time. Amy could fall into three different types depending on what day of the week it is. Right. She was very often, yes, a tomboy. Mm -hmm. And and the videos that we see, her father says that she was, you know, that's it. That is no mystery. That is a truth. However, her school pictures, she looks like the cute done up girl that the boys would want to talk to a completely different type. And then we also have neighborhood friends, uh, parents of of close friends of hers that she was a ragamuffin she was someone that was a child that was maybe not taken care of as good as she could have been because margaret had her issues she was and sometimes that's a type for a lot of these these predators as well i mean david elliot penton he killed multiple little girls that were five six seven years old you know who he targeted the ones that he thought were throwaways, the ones that he thought nobody would miss, the ones that lived in poverty, the ones that that he thought, you know what, the police won't care about them or yeah. mom's got a drug problem. So they'll start looking at the family before they look at the strange guy that creeped up next to this kid in the van that I've been following around for a week. So there are different types. And I think that Amy's victimology is difficult, one, because of her age. And Bill, you're absolutely right. She does appear to be older. You know, she, in in a lot of the pictures and videos leading up to her abduction, she actually appears to me to be like 12, 12 and a half years old. So it, it again, it goes back to victimology. Victimology is so important in finding and really shrinking the the pool of people, the suspect pool that you're going to choose from. So yeah, and I'd say the ragamuffin thing though, is also indicative of a tomboy. Was it that she wasn't Kemp because of her parents or was she not Kemp because when they tried to keep her that way, it was a disaster. You know, it's like I have nephews that will go outside in their nicest clothes and come back covered in mud eventually you don't put them in their nicest clothes oh you're going to go outside and play throw on this yeah just to just to give amy's family a little bit of uh there was that that was one thing that they were not pleased about uh, was the description of her being a ragamuffin um which any family would you know it it's got a negative connotation to it some in some ways. Some people take it as, oh, she wasn't taken care of. But like the captain said, it's more like, no, she probably just put on whatever the hell she wanted to put on and went and did her own thing. It wasn't so much of a, you know, she's not being taken care of. I mean, her dad was had a good job. Her mom had a good job. I mean, they weren't, trust me, the neighborhood they lived in was far from impoverished. And, you know, it's, one of those things like with Margaret having known issues of, I mean, this is not a shocker. We're not like speaking out of school. You know, she drank, she had addiction issues with alcohol. And with that being said, I mean, do you feel like, and I think Renner's brought this up. Do you feel like that this person could have been in her 
in her circle of friends or within her within her maybe not circle of friends but within the people that she hung out with well i mean it's pretty i mean you guys know the case better than me but it's pretty common knowledge that a lot of people believe that she was taken from the shopping plaza and then there's a debate on how long she was alive afterwards but they believe that she was taken away from that area um and and like you were saying how she has a little bit of an older demeanor i almost feel like this individual had to know her enough to know little quirks about her but i think in their idea i think their idea was that they're going to have some kind of real relationship with her and and then at at some point the the perpetrator's going wait a second this doesn't make any sense this is not going this is not going to end well for me her or anybody and i and i believe the she was murdered because of that um because they realized they made a mistake that, and they can't just drive her back home and drop her off that whether she knew the individual or he just felt like the time they spent together she knew her enough at that point knew them enough at that point and you know i think there's a lot of people again that argue back and forth on if this was the first time for this individual or or multiple times or if or if they tried to have other victims later um and maybe it's just a gut feeling but i think this was such a mistake that they made um that that's why the murder happened and that's probably why there was never another one connected to her case that's my personal opinion yeah and i do want to kind of clarify what i was talking about before because i don't think that i hit it home all the way but the the ragamuffin not cared for that the stuff that i was saying look she there's no doubt about it. She came from a good family, came from a good neighborhood, lived in a great area, wonderful house, went to a good school. Nobody questions that. And Mark Mahalovic is a hell of a guy. And the Mahalovic family has been through hell. What I, what I'm trying to point out is the, what is the perception of the abductor? It doesn't have to be the actual reality of what's going on. But when we have other people who have referred to her as a ragamuffin, you you reference somebody, Bill, but you know also we have uh, Jeannie Sabo and others. It you know, and I think that that was meant to be. I'm not going to go too far down a, a weird rabbit hole here, but I think that was meant to be a term of endearment. But we also know what that actually the definition of that word actually right. is. And so what I'm pointing out here is if if this guy was keeping watch on a neighborhood or, or looking for a victim, because he was, he was looking for a victim. That's one thing we know without knowing who he is or his modus operandi. We know that for a fact, whether it was a relationship or whatever. Right. And, and what I'm pointing out here is it wouldn't take much for someone to think that maybe she falls into this category of somebody that's vulnerable and that, that maybe, he's looking for somebody that's vulnerable. Right. It wouldn't take much to notice that a couple days a week, she's riding her bike by herself down to Holly Hills. Oh, there's no parent around. Oh, uh, every time I see her, she's in sweatpants off by herself. Um, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's the perception of the abductor that, that she could fall into his quote unquote type victimology that he's looking for. But again, it not be the the full reality. And you asked if it's if I think that it's somebody that she knew. No, I always I've always said this that I think that the main perpetrator. I want to be I want to be I want to underline that word real quick, without staying on it too long. The main perpetrator in this whole ordeal, she did not know who he was. That doesn't mean that the Mahalovic family doesn't know him. It doesn't mean that someone in her bigger, larger circle does not know this guy. I don't think she knew him. Um, I think Amy was a very intelligent girl. There's plenty of evidence to back that up. And 
what she was told on the phone, as far as we know, she did not know who this guy was. She was smart enough that if she would have recognized him that day when he met her, she would have went, this is not on the up and up. There's something wrong here. And we wouldn't be sitting here talking about the death and murder of Amy Mahalovic 31 years later. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that one. I think that both of you guys are right in the sense that if if things would have gone differently, if she wouldn't have put up a fight, most likely, I mean, we know that she, we're pretty sure she did. Um, you know, she she was not going to back down, but to say that, I mean, man, if things could have gone differently, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it. It's, it's a crazy thought. And I know this is a controversial, and this is, I don't even know if anybody's even talked about this, but, and I know I've talked to Chief Spetzel and he's given me specifics on the phone call and stuff like that. And earlier we talked about the phone calls being connected. What if the phone call didn't even happen? And this is like, she's, I, I don't know. I mean, it just seems like that's the only narrative that we've been given since the beginning and true, but we've been, you know, that information comes from more than one source it comes from two sources. Correct. And two people that she told. Right. And it's, and it, to me, it seems like too much of a coincidence. I, I, I agree. I agree. I'm just, I'm posing a question. I'm not necessarily right. saying that it is I'm at all. I just think that when you follow one narrative for 31 years and you haven't seen any results from that particular course you start to you have to at least question for a second whether or not there's some something amiss and it's not to say that that it there wasn't a phone call or there wasn't this that but like we know the game of telephone things get misconstrued by the second person third person whomever you know it's a different story by the end and i'm just bringing it up as a question because of the fact that that's the only story we've ever been given we were actually somewhat talking about this um while we were recording this week because i've been talking to a lot of people involved in different cases and you have this narrative especially like in in amy's case it's 31 years. So there's all these things that are we now view as factual. And most of that comes from published items. And when I mean published I items, you know, um, through podcasting, Bill, that normally when you go to post your, your new episode, it normally says publish. Publish the new mm -hmm. uh, episode. And so whether it's through books, whether it's through TV shows, whether it's, whether it's through podcast, sometimes we are rewriting the narrative of some of these cases. And that makes it harder to solve because go back to the Golden State killer case. When my friend showed me that a year and a half before the cops arrested this individual, that there was a guy on the message board going, hey, by the way, I've been looking into my family's history and my dad used to break into houses and he used to have this guy that would help him out sometimes. And here's a picture of the guy. And then on the message board, it's all these so-called experts of the case going, you don't know anything about the case. You're not an expert. You're stupid. You know, what's the guy's name? Oh, well, the guy gave me a pot or gave my dad a pot at one point, had his last name. So, you know, after being called an idiot, after people telling him, go read this book and research the case, the guy goes, oh, the, here's his name. And then a year and a half later, after DNA tests are done, the guy's arrested and charged as a Golden State killer. But he was on a forum a year and a half earlier looking for some answers. And I think that's where we're at with a lot of these cases. Amy Mahalovic, Mara Murray, Brian Schaefer, that podcasters, authors, documentarians, they're rewriting the narrative of what is factual. And, and then what's crazy to me 
just this last week, I'm interviewing the boyfriend of a missing girl. He's going over some of the stuff that happened in the in the initial search. And he tells me a couple pieces of information that I never heard before. And then don't really believe him. Can you confirm this? Oh, yeah, th this guy was with me. This guy was with me. So I talked to them. Now I got three people telling me the same story. I didn't even ask him a question. I just said, can you go over the story? Can you tell me from your, they tell me the same information. I go to our author that wrote about the case. He's telling me, no, that's a lie. That's not true. You can't believe him. Go to all these other individuals that have studied the case. Oh, he must be lying. So you're going to tell me that you wrote a book about the case. So you now know more than three individuals that were actually in her room. You, you see what I'm saying? Like, or were actually there at the search. We need to go back with a lot of these cases and try not to rewrite the history of it. Perfect example, like in the Mara Murray case, we have an eyewitness at the crash scene, one of the neighbors that said they saw a man possibly smoking in the passenger seat. And later on, years later, years later, the, the internet determines that that wasn't a cigarette, that it was possibly a light from a cell phone. Possibly a light from a cell phone. And now people are going back and looking into that case going, wait a second, we, we can't just turn this eyewitness's statements into whatever the hell we want it to be. And every time I've brought up that case, um, to detectives, to police officers, they always tell me the most important thing in that case is the crash, what happened within the next 30 minutes or so. And when I go over the eyewitness that saw the smoker, they go, oh, that, well, that's important. And then I say to them, well, we, we think it might have been a cell phone. They go, we don't care what you think it is. What did the eyewitness tell you? And maybe the eyewitness was wrong, but you can't rewrite the narrative. And I think we've done that a lot in cases because for example, the Amy case becomes more interesting because she got a phone call because she got yeah. duped. Okay. Now if, if that phone call was real and that phone call happened another 12 times, Oh shit, that's fascinating. Same way with like the Brian Schaefer case. We have no footage of him leaving the bar. Right there, you're hooked. Guy walks into a bar. We have no footage of him leaving. He's never been seen again. And, and we can't just rewrite um, th the narrative that we want it to be. And I think a lot of times, even like in a case like this, um, and I think, I think maybe it's a Hollywood thing too as well. We think that there's a, some genius Hannibal Lecter out there that's creating murders like seven, you know, going through the, the seven deadly sins or whatever. I just watched that again the other day. Great movie. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing movie, but that's normally not real movie. Yeah. Normally it's not reality. Chances are this guy was very lonely. He felt this weird connection he built a relationship between her and him and his head that didn't exist in real life. And he then got his opportunity and I, I wouldn't even say he was, I would say he's average or below average IQ. And yeah, I just, I think people think that there's some like mastermind out there. And after he was, he, he was able to kill Amy that he was going to then keep repeating it. Well, if he was a mastermind, there wouldn't be 12 calls with no captures. There would have been 10 calls and eight captures or whatever. But I think because we can't connect her case to anybody else's case, I think that proves as it was a one-off. Then that goes to, well, why would it be a one, one killing for this individual? I went on a complete crazy rant. Sorry about that. But it's just, I've, I've just been noticing this a lot as we cover cases. It's a great point. It really is. I mean, and that, and what, like, what you said about the genius Hannibal Lecter types, and I mean, look at Joseph D'Angelo or uh, 
whatever the Golden State Killer's name is. Look at that guy, and and you know he's far from Hannibal Lecter, you know, intellectually. And sure, he was just more lucky, I think, than anything. And in a lot of cases, I mean, he obviously was smart enough to get away with it. But I do believe that this is a most likely a one-off. But I also think because his plan got derailed. And I think that's why there was a murder that we have to view this individual as uh, somebody with a background that didn't do a lot of planning with their own life. And that would go back to like maybe where he lives. Um, that I think that's also indicative of how much financial means he had because this person was not a planner. Like, yeah, he made a phone call and, and got her to go to the shopping plaza. But I think that's, I don't think he had much of a plan after that. I think this individual was shocked that that even worked. Um, and since he didn't have much of a plan, I even think as far as like dumping the body, why wouldn't you, pl- you're talking about an area that's pretty wide open. You could have just went a little bit further and, and dug a ditch and, more likely that she wouldn't have been found. So I think there's a lot of missteps planning wise. And I think then that goes into the, the psychology of the individual, not a you know, little below average IQ um, doesn't plan a lot with their life. Probably doesn't have a lot of possessions. Probably doesn't have a lot of money in the bank. Probably isn't that far along in any type of career because they're, they're not one to plan. Yeah, Nick, what is your what's your feelings on that? Um, look, I mean, obviously we we clearly don't know the personality of this individual. I see somebody who took a lot of efforts and and planned a lot of things and actually whether it was luck or intelligence it's, or both, I see that there in the the abduction of this of this kid and I think that um but, but hold on and not to I'm not trying to sass you or anything, but what are the things that he planned out? The phone call on the meetup and then taking her away from that location? Yes. <clears throat> but but it wasn't a plan not to be seen. Yes, it was. We So that that I think is important to the makeup of this individual. The phone call shows to me someone a little more patient and maybe even a little more practiced, even if it's just thought and in planning, because, um, Mm -hmm. you, you grab a kid at random on the side of the road. There's very often witnesses and what we have. Yes, of course we do have witnesses in this exact story, but we have two very different kinds of witnesses. And, And when you compare the two, when you see a screaming kid get pulled into a car, that's a completely different witness than someone telling you a couple right. days later, oh, I saw uh, this man who was in his 30, 30 to 35 years of age. He walked up to Amy and the two walked away together. I think there's little nuances in here t- to me. And yes, I'm filling in a lot of blanks. I, I'm not, I'm not going to lie about that. I'm filling in a lot of blanks that, that we simply do not know the answers to. And yes, I'm making probably some leaps along the way too. Um, so take this with a grain of salt, but everything that I see here, uh, and the blanks that I'm choosing the way to fill them in, I, I see someone who has planned this out. We don't have the, the problem. And this is something that the chief of police was screaming from the hilltop immediately was we do not have a, a description of a vehicle. He's like, I would trade everything right. in this case for a description of a vehicle. I think that that shows some level of criminal sophistication here. I think that very likely, um, and and I'm not going to say that Dean Runkle did this, but and, and I don't, you know, he's certainly on my list of suspects. But but I think that James and other others have something there with the thought that this guy very likely parked behind the plaza. He didn't park in the parking lot that is so visible from every storefront in that plaza. We right. don't have anybody saying, oh, they, I saw the two of them leave in this vehicle, this, you know, whatever it may be. 
I think that shows a level of criminal sophistication. The other thing too, that, that, you know, uh, there's that weird comment by that's in the papers and always has been, and who knows again, captain's right. Who knows if somebody's changed the narrative? I don't know, but this was from the beginning where a witness said, I saw him place his hand on her back and he led her away. Think about that action and what that requires. Why do you, would you do that? Everything is a choice, whether it's he did something subconsciously or he did it well and it, with planned thought. Putting your hand on the back of a child and quietly walking them away is so much better than going, you see that blue truck over there? That's mine. That's where we're heading. You have to, you have to instruct this child where to go with you. You know, if we, if we, and, and it's a, it's a very gentle gesture, right? We don't You're not have, putting your hand on the, her shoulder. You're not grabbing her arm. You're not even trying to hold her hand. We don't because, have anybody saying that I saw them leave in this vehicle. We don't have a vehicle description. And then to take that a step further, we don't have anybody going, oh, he motioned toward a vehicle. We saw them walking toward this vehicle because there wasn't a ton. Oh, hold on. Right, right. But uh, what I'm saying is, is I agree with you on that. But what I'm saying is you could plan the call. You can plan the place to meet. You can plan. I, this is where I'll park and I'll take her to my vehicle. I don't think there was a lot thought out after that. Well, we have the phone call to Margaret, which I think is another strategic thing that was, that was done. Good we point. know that there was a, there's a third location. You know, this is one of those, this is one of those crimes where we have multiple crime scenes. When you, mm -hmm. when you really break it down, we have her home where the phone calls took place. We have the shopping mall, the shopping plaza where she was abducted from. We have the perpetrator's vehicle. We know that there's a vehicle involved because she, he transported her alive, dead, what have you. But there's a third place. I don't, I have a hard time believing that she was killed in a vehicle and then just dumped on the side of the road in, in Ashland County. And so Right. There, there's a, another crime scene that we are unaware of. So again, it's, it's yes, you're on the surface. You're absolutely right. I'm not disagreeing with you, but, but what I'm saying is when you, you have to really break it down and start going, okay, well, yeah, not only did he do the phone calls, but there's things inside the phone calls that are smart too. She told people about the phone calls. She doesn't name the person. Right. Well, that's pretty clever. Um, he gained her trust by telling her things about her and her life. That's pretty intelligent. And I'm not trying to give this, this, you know, despicable person, any type of credit. I'm just saying that it's, it's a combination of, he got some things right and he probably got lucky on a few things too. But I see somebody that was able to basically undetected abduct a, a pretty smart child in broad daylight in a very safe area. And he took precautions to buy some time afterward phone call to, to Margaret. And, uh, and, and, and I see what you're saying. Well, the, I'm not, but I'm not saying he, this guy's a moron. The murder doesn't seem to be thought out, nor does the dumping of the body, but those things are all secondary because neither of those we're all saying that we don't think that that was the intention. If that's not right. the intention, there's no way of planning for something that you don't foresee happening. Right. But here's my analogy. Guy goes to school on a roll, ABC student. You should go to college. Well, I don't know what I want to do with my life. So I'll go to college. Halfway through college. What's your major? I don't know. I'm just here taking classes at some point. Well, you got an, you got a bunch of uh, credits that lead you to be an English teacher, let's say. Okay, well, I'll do that. Get done with school. Can't get a job as a teacher, so then you get a job as something else. That's what I'm saying about as far as uh, the sophistication that I think the person had. I think they had, obviously, they had this idea that I'm going to make this call. I'm going to try to meet her here. I'm going to, you know, park in the back or whatever, but I, I don't, 
I think if there was a a plan, uh, there was a broad plan, but at some point it went off the rails and there was no, I think if there was a higher level of sophistication, there would have been, well, if this happens, then here's my options. If this happens, here's my options. And I just don't think this person had all that stuff planned out if that may, makes any sense at all no it, it does it makes sense i i hear both sides of your of the coin on you guys perspectives a little bit about the plaza it, you know it's like a u-shaped plaza there there's actually a number of places this individual could have parked that would have been outside of the view of the general public i mean you could park right behind any of the stores i mean one of the grocery stores is the closest thing and it's just the back of the grocery store. So, you know, it, there, there was a bank on the one side that wasn't really occupied by anybody other than an ATM. And I don't even know if the ATM was there at the time, but I can assure you that there were plenty of places that this individual could have, could have led her out of the public site. But the one thing that is interesting about that is we don't have any description of them going around the corner. All we have is that last bit of information about him putting his hand on her back and leading her but nobody says where or this was the last time you know like again the witnesses were kids so i you know i don't think they kept their eyes on him but right but here's my here's my problem with the the level of sophistication is when great point well he didn't obviously park where his vehicle was likely to be seen but he is leading her to a place that uh, he's going to be seen. I think he's so, in disguise. To be a hundred percent honest with you, I mean, I've done, I mean, just yeah. look at the sketch. It just looks like a wig and a and a and glasses. If that's the, or if comb that's, forward in glasses, yeah. And I and I just feel like you know, because I think the level of sophistication would come in. Okay, I can convince you that we're going to go to this plaza well 15 20 minutes after school's let out it's a desert why won't you just go i'll meet you at your school right after you know or i'll meet you around the corner from the school teachers parents well, well i i get the teachers and also if somebody's in there waiting and they're by themselves the teacher's going to go amy who are you waiting for all this guy is supposed to come pick me up, but I'm just saying that there's there's all these other places that you could have said, well, meet me here, so then we can go to the plaza. Unfortunately, that is all the time that we have for this week's episode, but stay tuned for part two next week with Nick and the captain of True Crime Garage. Thank you so much to Nick and the captain for joining me on this very special episode of Who Killed Amy Mahalovic. October 27th marks the 31st anniversary of Amy's abduction from the Bay Village Plaza, and her case remains unsolved to this day. If you guys have any information in regards to the death of Amy Renee Mahalovic, I implore you to contact the Bay Village Police Department at 440-871-1234, or you can contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. And again, if you have any information and want to stay anonymous, you can also submit a tip via Crime Stoppers. If you do enjoy the podcasts that I do produce, you can help support the show by donating via PayPal with my username BillHuffman123 at Yahoo.com or via Venmo with my username Bill-Huffman-3 and that will help keep these shows on the air. So again, any contribution does help. And if you want to support the show via a review, that would be great too, because that helps keep the cases that I cover in the spotlight. So again, thank you so much again for tuning in to this week's very special episode of Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic. This is part one of my conversation with Nick and the captain. Part two will be dropping next week. So again, as always... Stay safe and be healthy. See, New Yorker is getting answers on a new attempt to bring this family some justice.
What makes Amy's case so unique is the manner in which she was abducted. This wasn't some random act of opportunity. In the home of Bill Huffman is a makeshift studio, the walls covered with photos and newspaper clippings of a mystery that's yet to be solved. And welcome to episode one of the Who Killed Amy Maholovic podcast. The investigative journalist was just 10 years old in 1989 when the crime happened, the same age as Amy Maholovic. Her unsolved kidnapping and murder has haunted him for years. It just was one of those cases that just stuck with me. So he started a podcast. For the last several months, he's been interviewing investigators and those involved with Amy's case, hoping to find new clues and get answers. He tells me one of his most difficult conversations was with Amy's father, Mark. It's one thing to see a missing poster, and it's another thing to meet the father of the daughter. Tell us, why do you think this story resonates with people all over the world? Well, I just think Amy's case is so unique, and basically it boils down to the way that she was abducted. Most abductions aren't part of a ruse. Amy was called at home. You know, potentially this person knew that she was home alone. There are 10 episodes, and every Friday, Huffman will release one up until the anniversary of the day Amy went missing, October 27th. Any little bit of extra information, any tips that come in um, that could be generated from this podcast, uh, then the, the podcast has served its purpose. Getting answers in Bay Village. Let the killer know that this community will never forget what he did that day and remind him that we will one day find out who killed Amy Mahalovic. See a New Yorker, Cleveland, 19 News. Well, the podcast is available on all apps, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. If you have any tips about Amy Mahalovic's murder, please call 1-800-CALL-FBI. That's 1-800-225-5324. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.